Welcome to season four of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. We are excited about this season's guest, and you can learn more about our guests in this new season and previous seasons at jatwwilliams.com slash podcast. Did you know Jat is an author too? You can learn more from Jat through his book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question as he shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide all aspects of his life. You can learn more about the question on Jat's website too at jatwwilliams.com. Now let's listen to an all new episode of Knowledge Cast by Ideals. Well, welcome to our fourth season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back with us again. And if you're a first time listener, uh, welcome. And we hope that you enjoy today's podcast and will join us again next week. Well, today, uh, our guest is the man that if you have followed ACC basketball over the years, is someone you'll quickly remember. We have Phil Ford with us. Phil is known as probably the greatest point guard in the history of college basketball. Not a bad title to own. Uh, he was a three-time All-American for North Carolina, finishing there in 1978. He was part of four ACC championship teams, whether that be the regular season or the tournament champion. Made it to the finals of the NCAA tournament in 1977. And in Phil's senior year, he was selected by numerous um, national organizations as their national player of the year. If we had to go through all of those, we wouldn't have time for the podcast. But he also won the prestigious John Wooden Award. He had a seven-year NBA career after being selected as the number two pick in the draft and also was named NBA Rookie of the Year. So, Phil, it's a, it's a privilege to have you with us today. The privilege is mine. Thank you very much, Jack. I, I Thank you for having me on. Well, you are synonymous with North Carolina basketball and their legendary coach, Dean Smith. What was it like playing for Coach Smith? What, what, what did you feel made him so special as a coach? Well, I, he was a good man, believe it or not. Uh, he was uh, a man of faith, which... Uh, I'm sure we'll get into a little later that has rubbed off on me in my life right now. He was really smart uh, and he really cared for us. Uh, I'll tell a story to you. When he came to recruit me in high school, my, my senior year in high school, I was what's called a parade All-American. That's the top 10 high school basketball players in America. The younger people may not realize this is <laughs> McDonald's now, but anyway. Let's, let's just put um, it where you are a five-star. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And he came and talked to me in my, my home in Rocky Mount. And uh, it's really interesting because my mom, who's a French and English teacher, wasn't a big sports fan. So I had narrowed my choices to about five schools. And Carolina was the last school coming in to speak to me. And my mom didn't sit in on the other four. It was usually my coach, Richard Hicks, my dad and myself. But when Dean Smith was coming to visit me, my mom wanted to sit in on that meeting, not because he was the coach at North Carolina. My mom thought Dean Smith was the dean of a college at North Carolina. She was going to the academic stuff. So he comes, he comes to uh, Rocky Mount to speak to speak to us. My mom is sitting there, and believe it or not, for the first 30, 40 minutes of the meeting, we didn't even talk about basketball. I mean, we talked about being a good student, being a good friend, race relations, some of everything. 
Now, these other coaches had been telling me how much I was going to play. Someone was telling me I was going to start for my freshman year. When it came time to talk about basketball, Coach Smith looked me right in the eye and says, I really want you to come to North Carolina, but I'm not sure where you will fit in right now, but you may have to play junior varsity. And I went, whoa. So he leaves. <laughs> and I'm explaining the type of person that he is. So when he leaves, my mom comes in the room, and, and I had always wanted to go to North Carolina because of Charlie Scott, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little later, too. But she says, Phil Jr., we can trust Dean Smith. And I'm thinking to myself, Jack, you don't even know who it is. <laughs> to myself, you know, right, so, right. So she says, well, I know you want to go to North Carolina because I've heard you and Big Phil talk about it. That's your dream school. And if Dean Smith is going to let you go to North Carolina and you aren't good enough to make the varsity, but he's going to let you play JV and give you a scholarship, you should go. And if you get a chance to play a little bit as a sophomore, you know, and get a, on the varsity and get a chance to play a little bit more as a junior, let's just say by some chance going into your senior year, you have a chance to be a starter at the University of North Carolina, your dream school. You can be assured that Dean Smith would not be out promising your starting position to another high school All-American. And she kind of kissed me and skipped out of the room. She had me, you know, but, but, but that's just the type of person that he was. He was honest and, and um, it was the beginning of a type of father-son relationship that he and I had until the day he died. Well, you know, that, that comment that your mother made at the end she may or may not have known how insightful that was. She didn't understand sports, but she she understood that if he wasn't promising you a starting job, exactly. like you were, that he right. wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to take your he wasn't going to promise your position to somebody else. Exactly. So that exactly. was that was pretty insightful for someone yeah. that didn't follow sports. She probably saw me play from the seventh grade, organized basketball, through seven years of the NBA, maybe three times in person. <laughs> that's that's crazy that's crazy she didn't realize what she had uh, <laughs> she listen. did she was going to be being a gentleman than a court guard <laughs> well she she accomplished that too well, that's uh, thank you your uh your junior year you made it to the, the final four i know uh you know very few basketball players get to that pinnacle and you've been close a few times but what was it like playing in the, in the final four and what was your memory from that well, it's just amazing that we made it to the Final Four that year. I mean, you have to give Marquette credit. They beat us fair and square. And, uh, but along the way, uh, Walter Davis, uh, another great player in North Carolina, broke his finger. I had a hyperextended elbow. But Marquette was just really good that night. But I can't believe Coach Smith actually got us that far as beat up as we were as a team. And uh, that Marquette game, believe it or not, that's the only game I still have nightmares about in my whole career. But uh, we were close, but uh, just couldn't pull it out. Butch Lee and Bo Ellis and those guys were fantastic. They weren't there by accident, were they? I'm telling you, they were good. Yeah. Well, you know, people that followed uh, basketball in, in your era, which was my era, they know uh, – when we say the four corners offense, they know what we're talking about. And it, it really changed how basketball was played at the end of a game during that time. And tell us, tell us how coach Smith devised that, how it worked. And I can personally tell you, I, I saw firsthand in person at Virginia twice, um, 
the effect that it had on a team and how successful it was and how frustrating it was for opposing teams when I was coaching up there in football and watching you play. But tell us about how that came about and um, how it worked for those that don't understand what the Four Corners offense was. Well, the Four Corners offense was a delay that we would use sometimes 10 minutes in a game, sometimes five minutes in a game. Uh, we didn't use it at the beginning of the game when I was a student athlete at Carolina, but we would go into it pretty early in the second half if Coach Smith deemed it necessary. And to me, I think the four corners worked because people actually thought that we were going to stall. And we would. If you wouldn't come out and guard us, you know, if you wanted to just slough it back in and we were, you know, up one corner, two points, we would just hold the ball under our arms and take the score as is. But if you came out to guard us, you know, we were going to try to get a back door, try to get foul. Walter Davis was the only player on the team that had permission to take like a little two foot jump shot. But believe it or not, as hard as that shot is to him, it was just like a layup. But all, everybody else, the rules were a layup or, or get fouled and, in order for the four corners to work, Jack, I think I get a little too much credit for that because you have to have five very good ball handlers on the court because if you didn't, the defense was just funneling the ball to that player. And you have to have five very good free throw shooters that could hit free throws, some pretty tough free throws in some tough situations, you know, close score late in the game. Sure. Because, you know, if, if, you, if, that, if you had a player on the court that couldn't do that again, the defense was throwing the ball to him and fouling. And the big thing was to have five pretty good defenders out there because usually the other team out of frustration when we did get a layup or, or free throw would go down and take a very bad shot at the other end. And it was very important to box out and rebound and don't give them a second chance and come down and do it again. And it kind of snowballed. And, you know, when – you know, you went up seven or eight points, and that was usually the game. But believe it or not, you know, that's what we were remembered by. But we averaged almost 80 points a game my four years at North Carolina. So we were looking to score out of it, but we weren't going to force you to force it if we were up. We were going to make you come out and guard us. And, and that's what I think the camera that broke, the straw that broke the camel's back was 82. When you guys had stick, um, I forgot who else was on that team. And we had uh, Worthy and, and and Coach Holland just had them back in that zone. And, you know, Coach Smith was going to try to get inside shots with Rafton because he was going to block everything. And we wound up playing four corners a whole lot that game. And I think that's when they really thought about the shot clock really hard in the ACC. And I left in 1978, and that was 1982. So uh, I think well, that's why they broke the cameras back. The, the four corners, for those that don't know, the the offense, the, the the five players, four of them went to extreme corners of the court, and Phil, the point guard, would stay in the middle or and dribble, Houston. dribble or and attack. A Richmond, Virginia guy. Yeah, attract. You know, he would attack and and uh, feed off if they got uh, an opportunity, or just keep dribbling it. And he 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 downplayed his role, but. That would not have worked without a point guard uh, of, of your caliber. Um, Thank you. You played with against some pretty terrific guys during your era. What were a couple guys that really stood out that you respected as players? Well, gosh, 
just thinking in the ACC, uh, I think David Thompson and Ralph Sampson and Michael Jordan are probably the heads of the <laughs> I think you could probably stop. I think you could probably stop there. <laughs> I'll tell you, those guys are a different breed of animal. They uh, they were fantastic, but to me, I think Magic is probably the greatest point guard to ever play because he's just so big and handle the ball so well and passes so well and shoots it. Uh, I've just been blessed to play against some really, really good players, especially in this league from Maryland, John Lucas. And, you know, um, gosh, I mean, it's just so many good players in this league. I've been really blessed. Well, you were the second pick in the draft. That had to be a pretty thrilling night for you. What's it like? knowing that you could go anywhere from probably one to five in the draft. What was, what was going through your mind that night? Well, it's pretty interesting that you said that, that uh, I, uh, at that time, you know, Coach Smith knew the draft a day before. He knew where everybody's going to go. He <laughs> could tell you that. I had an idea that I was going to go to Kansas City. And at that time, um, I kind of wanted to go someplace else. So I wound up holding out for just before the season started, but as it turned out, Kansas City was the best place for me for playing with Otis Birdsong and Scott Webman and Sam Lacey and Bill Robinzine and and playing for Cotton Fish Simmons. It was the perfect spot for me coming out of college was playing in Kansas City. Well, you had some injuries you had to deal with that kind of cut your career short. How, how did you... Um... You know, I know you've had some before, but the, the, these were more significant. How did you deal with that? Not very well. Uh, my uh, third year in the NBA, I was having probably my best years of pro. And um, I was guarding a guy named World B. Free. Uh, oh, yeah. And he was going to make a baseball pass, and I jumped up to block the baseball pass, and he stuck his thumb in my eye. and I had a blowout fracture of my left eye. And to this day, I still have some double vision and I didn't come back as fast as I thought I should come back. And I just kind of gave up and got into some really bad habits that I shouldn't have gotten into that bothered me most of my adult life. But uh, through the grace of God and through support from family and friends, things are going well and have been going well for many years now. Well, let's, let's talk about, you've been very open about uh, those addiction problems that, that occurred back then. Tell that story and, and how you were able to, to work through that. Well, it's, it's not something that you work through. I, I think it's more of giving up. And mm. once you give up and, and admit that you do have a problem and know that you can put it in God's hands, which I have done, it makes things so much easier. And again, Coach Smith was always there for me. Uh, thick and thin, good and bad. He actually would go to some AA meetings with me. Um, and then, you know, I had my, my family and, and very close friends. I, I, I consider myself very blessed because it's just something very hard to go through alone. And I feel for people that have to go through it alone. But, you know, once I turned my life over to Jesus Christ, it made things so much easier in my life. And I'm enjoying life today. Well, that's a that's a great story. You you answered a question I was thinking about in my head. Who were who were some of the people that were walking alongside you during that during that I mean, time? Coach and you Smith, just you just Coach read them Rutherford, off. Dave Hanners, John Kuster. I mean, I can just keep going down the line. Al Wood, Walter Davis, just I mean, and, and how important? Constant, I mean, all 
I mean, I've just had so much support in my life. It's been really humbling. I think you can attest to how, for those that, that go through any type of struggle, uh, you can attest to how how um, beneficial is not strong enough word. What a blessing it is to have people because those are things that you don't normally go through by yourself successfully. And, and, uh, and it's one of those things too that people really don't have to get involved to support you because you know we all know it's still a, a certain stigma that is associated with addiction and a lot of people tend to just step away from it and not be involved with it but i was blessed that people got in with both hands and got their hands dirty and like i said it's been many years now since i've been sober and i thank god for every day that i have right now well, those people also that do step in, uh, they do so for, for, you know, for the right reasons, but they probably still don't have an idea of the impact that they make in those people's lives when they do step in. I hope they do. I, I, I thank them every time I see them. So I'm, I wouldn't I, be I, without them. I, I'm sure that, uh, that you do. Um, let's go back just for a second to your college career. You had some pretty big wins during that career. Were there one or two that were, either more rewarding or more memorable for you? Not really. You know, just, Jack, just my, and I guess I get that question uh, asked certain ways uh, throughout my, my, my life. My, my entire experience at North Carolina, my entire ath student athletic experience in North Carolina, athletically, academically, socially, was everything that I thought it would be. You know, when I came to Carolina, it's funny, I was talking with somebody the other day. I went to Carolina and I did visit Virginia, as a matter of fact, and of course Gibson was there. And, uh, but I wound up choosing Carolina because of Coach Smith, the main reason, but I wanted to walk down Franklin Street and, and hang out and eat and, you know, I wanted to go to class at Carolina. I wanted to wake up in Granville Towers in the dorm with the kids. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not sure if kids are gonna continue to choose schools that way because of the NIL. But I really wanted to go to Carolina and my entire experience, I mean, not only the games, but just experiences we had back in the dorm. I remember, I remember it must've been my freshman or sophomore year the entire team squeezed in Walter Davis's room watching The Wizard of Oz. And <laughs> I'm talking about getting into it too, you know, oh, ee, oh, ee, oh. I mean, just, just stuff like that that I remember. So um, crying together, winning together. I mean, it's just, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't think twice about going to Carolina. Right. I would go to Carolina in a moment. You know, you mentioned something as we began to wrap up that I wanted to, throw out to you, um, you know, college athletics is changing rapidly. Uh, and personally, in opinion of one, not for the good. Um, <laughs> I'm not, but, Jack said that I didn't, but I feel you. <laughs> I feel you real hard, Jack. <laughs> uh, what, what advice would you give a young athlete now, say in high school, that's got some talent? Uh, what advice would you give them? You just shared you know, your decision-making process, which is different than right now what most kids are going. In fact, not just high school, as we know now, the 
the college sports have, have inherited the professional free agent. We're now with the portal, you know, you have to recruit your own players every day and people go to the highest bid. But what, what advice would you give to a young athlete to try to keep them grounded? Jack, I, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just changed so much. But I, I would really recommend that young players have faith. I, I think that's the most important thing because if you have faith, you're probably going to try to do what's right. And in doing what's right, you're probably going to make a lot of better decisions trying to do what's right than doing what's bad. So I think the first thing they should have is faith. Uh, remember, when, when you're going from college, from high school to college, it's it's not a hundred hundred uh, meter race. It's more of a marathon. So I try to explain to kids, it's not how good you do on the first or second day, it's how good you are on the on the last, on the next to the last, and, and the last day that you're there. So right. you want to just continue to get better. But now I think kids, if things aren't going right, you know, it's an easy outlet for them to go to another place and try to make things. But in the long run, you're going to have to make it right, whether you at the school you originally went to or go to another school. So try to remember, it's not a dash; it's a marathon. And well, I think I think they're missing out on one of the great attributes that people have to learn, whether it be sports or anything else, and that is overcoming adversity and persistence and patience. And uh, you know, now it's a it's a now it's a now deal, and they go from now. being told how great they are in high school, and and just like Coach Smith told you, you know, he knew how great you were, but he wanted you to know that you know this is going to take some time. Don't don't. Yeah, it's funny to, that you said that because I guess as recently as within the last year. A guy named Eddie Fogler, who was on the staff at that time. Uh, About 10 or 11 of us former athletes and coaches meet for lunch uh, once a month. And that subject came up and Eddie said that uh, we knew you were going to start, but we weren't going to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first time I ever heard that. They knew it. (laughs) They'd have got fired if they hadn't started. Gee, what are you talking about? Well, Phil, listen, uh, thanks so much for, for sharing your story with us Jack, today. Pleasure's been mine. Thank you for having me. I'm telling you, selfishly, it was fun to be able to speak with a guy that I really admired and enjoyed Thank watching you. so much as a player. And I want to uh, wish you continued success and keep telling your story. It's important that you keep telling your story. Will you hook Wayne and Gwen for me up there now? I will. I will do that. <laughs> Well, as we wrap up another KnowledgeCast episode, a special thanks to each of you for making us part of your day. And I hope that you'll join us again next week for another interesting guest like Phil. And until then, make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others.